Thanks for tuning in to this week's sermon at Fountain City Church. We hope that you are blessed by this message today. If you'd like to learn more, you can check out our website at fountaincity.org. All right, turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 7. Um, in all of the transitional kind of weeks we've had in this last month, uh, we've actually been moving through the Gospel of Mark, and we've taken several stutter steps in that uh, just to kind of uh, accommodate everything else going on. And so we want to jump back into that this week, um, and we're going to be in chapter 7, verse 31 is where, st- where we're starting. Uh, and if you've missed the past couple of weeks or months, perhaps, um, then I want to just give you a quick review of everything that's been going on in the Gospel of Mark. Um, and I think that it's really important that we look back and we see what it is that Mark is actually declaring about Jesus and his kingdom. Uh, and so uh, just a quick reminder, Mark is saying two really, really important things to the readers of this gospel. He is saying, firstly, that Jesus comes as the Christ or the Messiah. Now, we're not Jewish, and so there's a whole lot of context in that. But for the nation of Israel who were under oppression, they were being ruled over by um, pagan Rome. For them, they had this promise all through their scriptures that there would come this man in the line of King David, a descendant of David who would rule on the throne, and he would actually reestablish Israel um, as the kingdom of God on earth. And so their concept of what Israel was all about was that that was the, in, that was the encapsulation of God's kingdom, right? Um, for us, when we talk about the kingdom of God, most of us start ascending to these thoughts of heaven or this other world. But for Israel, it was their nation. They thought about their people and their place and their place of worship and the place where they lived. That was the kingdom of God. And so Mark was declaring that in Jesus, all of the hopes all of the promises that were given over uh, to the, the Israelites were actually fulfilled in him. It's, it's a dramatic promise. It's a dramatic uh, declaration. But the second thing that he is saying is that Jesus is not only the human descendant of King David who has come to rule and reign on the throne, but he is also the son of God. That He is the descendant of God himself, or not the descendant, that he is actually God himself, and that he is coming to rule the earth uh, in his righteousness and his peace and his joy. And so as we see Jesus teach and perform miracles throughout the Gospels, we understand that his ministry is pointing to what God is like. And so these pictures that we see in the scriptures are not just occasions where we say that was nice. Um, Really cool that Jesus did that 2,000 years ago. But it's actually an indication of God's character and his personality. And it also tells us what the kingdom of God is all about. And so all of these miracles, they're not detached from today and from who we are and who we're becoming in Christ, but they're actually completely attached to it because we are seeing how good God is and what he thinks about other people and what his plan is for the universe and what that means for you on a Tuesday. That's right, Tuesday at three o'clock when you're really tired and you're at work and that person beside you is getting on your nerves, right? How does the gospel inform my life in the middle of my work day, in the middle of the week. And he is also pointing out to us how different the kingdom of God is than our culture and than the systems of the world. Are you with me? Yes. Are you with me? If you're not with me, say no, and I'll re-explain it, I promise, okay? And so as we look back over this previous uh, passages in chapter 7, we see that Mark has a very specific message that he's getting across. Okay, so if you haven't been reading along, you haven't been maybe watching the messages, I want to quickly recap that. Um, 
in chapter 7, verses 1 through 23. In fact, if you just want to thumb over it in your Bible, um, in fact, Roman, will you do me a favor? If you need a Bible and you don't have one, we have a stack of them on the front table. We'd be happy to just hand you one. That's going to be helpful for you to read over it. Uh, if you need a Bible, would you just lift your hand real quick? Roman's going to pass them out. No? Everybody good? Okay. Bibled up. Sweet. Okay, chapter 7, verses 1 through 23. Jesus starts Mark 7 by defying the Jewish understanding of what makes us clean and what makes us unclean. Right? In, in Judaism, there were some very specific things that made you clean, and there were very specific things that made you unclean. And for them, they were castigating the disciples for not going through traditional hand washing. And they were talking about food laws. And Jesus comes and he says, that's not what makes you unclean. The thing that makes you unclean is the junk that comes out of your heart. It's, it's the sin, it's the adultery, it's the pride, it's the arrogance. It's not how many human traditions you fulfill. It is God coming to clean your heart. So Jesus essentially is saying God judges the heart. And the implication is that only God can make a person clean. And this is an offensive message to the Jews who had a specific order that you had to go through in order to get clean and stay clean. Jesus is saying there is only one thing that will make you clean. It's me. Right. He jumps over again to verses 24 through 30, which uh, Chrissy talked about two or three weeks ago, which was great. If you've got time, go listen to that message. Um, She was way better speaker than me. She's so eloquent. Um, Jesus actually speaks in verse 24, and he challenges the faith of this outsider Greek woman who, guys, according to Jewish law, she has no access to God's promises. She shouldn't even be around Jesus. But Jesus goes the distance to come to her, and when she begs him to heal her daughter, he does it. And Jesus is essentially saying to all of us and the Jewish listeners, he is saying the promises and covenant of God are not just available for the insiders, the name of Israel, but they're also available for the outsiders who call on my name. And so Jesus, in one passage of Scripture, is like punching all of these customs and traditions in the face, and he is saying God is different and God's kingdom is better than you can imagine. It's not about what you can earn. It's not about how much you can do. And by the way, it's available for anyone who calls on my name. And for us, we just read through this because we're used to reading this. It's just another story. But for them, this is revolutionary. And I think for us today, as we chew on it, it'll revolutionize the way that we see God as well. Okay? So Jesus is challenging a lot of this Jewish thought about who the Messiah was coming for. And he's doing this because Israel has really lost sight of who God was and what his kingdom was all about. So now we're going to jump into verses 31 through 37 and see how um, Mark continues to build on this theme. Okay, you ready? All right, so let's look together. Mark 7, 31, it says, Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre, and he went through Sidon, down to the Sea of Galilee, and into the region of the Decapolis. And there some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. Come on. Verse 34, he looked up to heaven with a deep sigh, and he said to him, Ephatha, which means be opened. And at this, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. And Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone. But the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. And people were overwhelmed with amazement. And they said, he has done everything well. 
He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. So Mark actually starts off by telling us that after Jesus and his disciples have left this Greek woman in Tyre, they travel through Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee and into this region called Decapolis. Now for us, I read that in a single sentence and it makes no difference to me. How many of you, you read over that and it's like, no big deal. Jesus goes on a road trip. We get it. We get it. We get it. Right. Um, but Devon, will you put this map up? And uh, what I want you to see is that Jesus has some intentionality. There's some strategy in what he's doing that goes beyond what we see. And I really believe that it is connected to what we see all throughout Mark chapter seven. It says that Jesus leaves Tyre, which if you can see it there, oh, you're not going to be able to see um, Sidon. If you see Tyre right there at the top, does everybody see that? Yes, it's on the top left on the coast. If you go up um, like another six inches, Sidon is way up north. And then the Sea of Galilee is all the way down here at the bottom, this little blue angle. And then all of the towns to the right of that are the Decapolis. Okay, so the scripture actually says that Jesus is headed from Tyre to the Decapolis. And what route does he take? Due north, like several days or weeks, then due south to the Sea of Galilee, and then over to the Decapolis. <laughs> it's the weirdest. In fact, in trying to even study what it is that Jesus is up to here, scholars all completely disagree on what he's doing and why. In fact, one of the, the, the theories was that John Mark just really was not good at geography, and so he just misspoke and said the wrong cities which is a terrible theory for the Bible, you know what I mean? Like, he was just lousy in geography. Clearly, Jesus just chose a different route. No, Jesus is actually taking his guys on a road trip here, and it is strategic. It is deeply connected to how we see cleanness and uncleanness. It is deeply connected to how we become righteous. It is deeply connected to God's his kindness and his grace, even to those that we think are outsiders. Here we have Jesus taking his guys on this long trip, scholars say that it was 120 miles on foot. Just think about that for a minute. So Jesus' goal is to get from there to there, and what he does is he takes a 120-mile road trip to get him there. Why? It's eight months. That's what most scholars say. This, this trip was an eight-month trip. Jesus, his ministry lasts three years, and he spends 20, over 20% of it on this one verse. Crazy. Why in the world would he do that? I think that there is a whole lot packed in here, and I think in the middle of this um, is the context that we see in chapter 7. Jesus is about to entrust the kingdom of God on the earth to 12 Jewish male disciples and lots of other Jewish followers who trailed behind him. He is investing what it means to be the kingdom of God. He is establishing leaders and elders, people who will oversee and advance the gospel all across the world. And for them, for the Jews, their concept of God's kingdom, like I mentioned earlier, was that it was just them. God's kingdom was the nation of Israel. And Jesus is actually working to unwire their thinking so that they can fully understand what he's doing in this moment. Um. So there were these insiders, the Jews, in their perspective, and they had all of God's promises and covenants, and then there were outsiders. There was everyone who was not Jewish. And Jesus is confronting exactly that theory for the Jews. And part of this identity that came with uh, this insider culture and this outsider culture 
was that the Jews had a disdain for the Gentiles. You see it through the, the course of the scripture multiple times, but we see that they don't actually talk to the Gentiles. Uh, they would mistreat the Gentiles. They didn't interact with women even in their own culture, much less women as a, as, uh, a Gentile culture. They even called Gentiles dogs, and they were unclean, right? And the Gentile nations hated them equally. There was this massive divide between these two groups of people, the kingdom of God and everyone else, the insiders and all the outsiders. So you can imagine how confusing it is when Jesus comes on the scene and they're saying, this guy's the Messiah. And what are the disciples thinking? He's going to come back and set Israel up. This is the time. We're coming back to power. This is going to be legit, right? Like there's this hype around the person of Jesus. Come on, guys. Thank you, Josh. I just need one smile off of saying legit. That was helpful. Um, <laughs> you're like, you're 38. Quit saying legit. Okay, I will. Um, you can imagine how confusing it is when this guy who was supposed to come and fix Israel comes back and he starts loving other people. He's actually got an agenda that's bigger than what they thought. He has a, a strategy and a plan to reach more people than whom they had considered. And Jesus starts speaking, like in the previous passage, to a, a Gentile woman, a woman who had no right, right? Had no access to him or to the covenants and promises. And Jesus is spending time talking to her. And you got to imagine, if you can climb into the mind of a, of a, a first century Jewish man, they're thinking, what are you doing, Jesus? You're, you're Messiah. You're supposed to be spending time helping us, but instead you're talking to our enemies. What are you up to? But Jesus just has this way about him where he just can't avoid making friends out of everybody. Everybody, even the Pharisees who come to him and genuinely want to know, he'll talk to them, right? Jesus has no enemies except those who continue to reject him and hold him in an arm's length. And those who think that their piety will earn them a place in God's kingdom instead of their surrender to him. Um, so what's happening here is that Jesus is retraining his disciples to see God's purpose is to redeem everyone. And this is not an easy thing for them to get a hold of. You know, one of the things we face and we wrestle with in the Bible Belt South part of our country is that we still have an insider culture and outsider culture. Right? You guys ever experienced that? It's like if you go to church and do all the right things, you're inside. And then if you don't, you're outside. And we might not judge you to your face, but there's this subtle judgment behind your back. Like, we'll smile to you and then cut you when you're not looking. Like, that's, that can be a Southern culture, you know. Um, and what we see here is that Jesus is confronting that same feeling, that same idea that's in the hearts of his guys. He is teaching them that his kingdom and his government will cover the earth, not just a single nation. He's teaching them that his promises and his laws are actually for all people, not just for this group of people. And in order for them to do that, Jesus has a very specific function here. He is taking them to a place where they're going to have to actually deal with that reality. Habakkuk 2.14 says it beautifully, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Listen to that. God's end game, his plan for the world is that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord is going to cover the entire earth. Scripture tells us that Jesus will come back and he will actually rule the nations. That's not like a, a, a thing that's just metaphor. Jesus will actually come back as king and rule actual nations. Think about that. 
like w- we talk about political uprisings and things like that. One day there will be no question about who is in charge. Jesus will descend from, uh, from heaven. We will see him and hear him, and he will bring everything into submission under his feet. And it will be a righteous government, a just government. Are you with me? Is that hard to wrap your minds around like it is for me? The idea that that is what God is doing, but this is what he points to. And so Jesus is actually taking time to convert the mindset of his followers from being just about Israel to about everyone who will call on God's name. It's a massive shift. So how does he do this? He, he takes them on this long, slow journey through Gentile country, and he models to them how to love and minister to Gentiles. Eight months. Eight months of moving from one little town and one little neighborhood to another, loving and serving and ministering to people that they would curse a year before that, that they wouldn't touch. They wouldn't visit their town. Those people are dogs. They're the worst. And all of a sudden, all of this has been made available. What does Jesus do? He invites them to go on this road trip so that they can unlearn things that have nothing to do with him. Isn't that cool? See, there's something in this for us. The the racism and the superiority was so deeply rooted in in the Jews that the only way to confront it was by immersing them in the very places with the people they hated. And it's funny, that stands out to me that the very people and places that often we want to stay away from, those are the places where God wants to build his kingdom most. Are you with me? We're in a moment that is incredibly divisive and filled with conflict and issues. And in the midst of that, the people that oftentimes we want to straight arm, stiff arm, and hold at a distance from our lives, those are the people that God delights to build his kingdom among. He's not looking for the areas where it's all set up and perfect and everyone is nice. God's kingdom is invading darkness. It's invading the places that are broken and devastated socially and economically and geographically and politically and spiritually. And the very people often that we in our um, our put-together Christianity, our couth Christianity, oftentimes we start to distance ourselves from those who are really lost And what I want to encourage you to see is that Jesus has this affection and this magnetism that draws him to the most broken for the sake of leading them to the kingdom. And often we just keep stiff-arming people, but God is looking for people who will go into the the highways and the byways, the, the, the dark and broken places in order to build the kingdom. And I just wonder if there are anyone among us in here who just say, I want to be a part of that. Like, I don't have a heart to stay in the safety of home and the convenience and the confines of things that I know and I understand, but I am willing to step out in faith and trust that God can use my life, my, my declaration, my testimony, the way that I work, the way that I make good decisions, and he will actually minister to people around me what the kingdom of God actually looks like. I, I won't just stay safe. I won't just lean into convenience. I'm actually going to live on the edges of what other people say is a bad idea. Why would you go there? Why would you live in that place, Miguel? Why would you go there, Jalisha? How come you're making these decisions, Emily? I'll tell you why. Because Jesus is always moving into the margins. He's always pushing past what's comfortable and convenient for the sake of loving people who are outside. Jesus is not just king of insiders. Jesus came for the outsiders. 
And he comes so that you and I can equally gain a heart that burns for the outsiders, for those who are not quite able to get to him. And every single one of us understands this because when it's just you alone, you know that you couldn't get to God by yourself either. I remember I was sharing with Johannes the other day. I was probably in college and had lived since I was five. I, I remember being saved as a little boy uh, and doing everything I could. I was baptized in the Spirit when I was 12. You know, just had this, this encounter with the Holy Spirit where he changed my life and filled me up. Um, but it was probably when I was 17 that I really started to understand grace. And I thought, God, why, why did it take so long? You know, like I've been walking this thing out for a long time. Why is it that it's taken me until college to understand grace? And it was because I had this revelation that I was still being mastered by sin, that I was still an outsider in my actions, really disobedient to God and enslaved. I was a slave to sin. And when I was 16 and 17, that became crystal clear because I would try to overcome sin. I would try to actually outdo what was in my heart, but I couldn't ever get past it. Every time I would bump into it, I would just fold. I would continue in the same actions and the same activities. And God started to show me that he loved me in spite of that. And that destroyed all my walls of Phariseeism and earning stuff and trying to work for my salvation. For the first time, I understood there was a God who was sprinting toward me, calling out for me, reaching out for me when I had nothing to offer him. I wasn't good. I wasn't well-behaved. I wasn't any of those things. And some of you in here, maybe you have the same story. that You feel like God has just simply rejected, but I, I want to propose that Jesus gives us a picture of a father who is sprinting after us, and he is redeeming us even when we are far away and broken. We have all been those outsiders. You know, the story of Jonah kind of speaks to me where this God calls this man to go into this culture. And he wants him to go and proclaim the gospel. But Jonah runs as far as you can in the known world. He gets as far away from God as possible. And then, of course, you guys know the story. The storm sweeps up. They throw Jonah overboard. He's swallowed by a big fish. And then it says that God kind of delivers him onto the sand. Uh, and then the word of the Lord comes to him again. Go to Nineveh. And the end of the story is this kind of look in the mirror for all of us where Jonah says, I didn't want to come here because I knew you were going to be merciful to them. Like that's why Jonah didn't want to go to this group of people because he hated that God was going to be merciful and cut them slack. And for so many of us, our hearts are bent toward being insiders that don't want to see God prevail for others, you know? And, and I can't help but think about our current moment that all of us in here, you are being sucked into the vortex of like political crisis, right? You've got to choose a path, choose a party. I, I get like four texts a day right now. Anybody else? Like everybody and their mom named Nancy is texting me to see who I'm voting for. Uh, and I, I think we're in this moment where we have to remember that God is calling us to stay more devoted to the kingdom of God than we are to the kingdoms of this world. And that the only answer for the kingdom of this world is actually the kingdom of God intervening. Um, let's keep going. Verse 32, it says, There some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. And you can almost imagine the disciples urging Jesus, please don't touch that Gentile man. You know that this is not good. 
But Jesus doesn't move away from people or their problems. He actually moves toward them. We see in this moment that Jesus resists his cultural urges and he leans in and he begins to move toward this gentleman. And and I just can't help but think that Jesus also doesn't move away from us and our issues, but he moves toward us. How many of you have experienced that where Jesus leaned in and he moved toward you in the midst of your brokenness? Yeah? You wanted to have it fixed before you came to him. And he said, no, 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 that's not how it works. I start long before you begin to clean up. The work that I do, it always is preeminent. It always supersedes what you can do. And the question is, do we move away from people and their problems? Or do we move toward them? We, we see in Jesus' life how he lives, and, and there is this demand on us as Christ followers. If I'm going to follow Jesus, that means that I'm going to be moving toward people. Toward people that I disagree with. Toward people that don't necessarily even like me. I'm, I'm going to move toward them and their crises and their issues because I love them. This is the call. And right now, we are in this season, man. We just want to stiff-arm people and keep them out of our space because it is messy, and, man, people are messy. Are you with me? Are you with me? We actually make decisions on a day-to-day basis. Am I going to fight to keep my own personal energy, or am I going to sow my energy into people? Are you with me? It is. It's a big decision. But Jesus always leans in. Verse 33 And after he took the man aside away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears and then he spit and he touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven with a deep sigh and he said to him, Ephatha, which means be opened. And at this, the man's ears were opened and his tongue was loosened and he began to speak plainly. You know, it's worth noting here that Jesus, instead of just saying be opened in front of the crowd of people, you can imagine Jewish leader, Gentile man. It's easier for him in this moment to just declare healing and then go away, right? We've seen him do it. Jesus has declared healing over many people with just his words. But in this moment, he looks at him and he says, why don't you come over here by yourself? And I can't help but to notice that Jesus doesn't objectify this man or treat him as just another outsider. But Jesus gives him his time and his attention. He singles out a guy who is his enemy to focus compassion on him. Think about that. Jesus can take the easy route, but he doesn't. And, and I've, I can't help but for us to notice that it's really easy for us to objectify people that sit on different sides of issues in our culture. Right? This is the most divisive season. I can see it on many of your faces. Tyson and I were talking about it last night, just how divisive everything is around us right now. And it is easy to label and demonize and then flush people when they don't reflect your position on things. And strangely, in this moment, Jesus shows the most compassion to the person who is the most different from him. Do you notice that? This guy who is culturally my enemy, this person who is uh, deaf and he actually needs to be healed, Jesus draws him close. He pulls him out of the crowd. He singles him out for the sake of showing him compassion. And Jesus teaches us that if we're going to really love someone, we have to be in proximity to them. It's not enough to just say, I love those people I differ from. Jesus says, show me. Show me how you love them. We're in a season where voices are loud and actions are few. 
where people have a lot of talk, but there's not a lot of walk. And for us in this moment, Jesus invites us, don't simply point and say, the church loves you, get yourselves right, you know what I mean? But what does it look like to us, for us to actually love? To draw someone to the side, to get in proximity to people who are still broken. To, to, uh, to be willing to enter into relationship with them before they change their perspective to fit what you think. What does it look like for us to practice the same kind of intervening love that Jesus practiced? We cannot hate and love people at the same time. Are you with me? One of the key ways that you will overcome internal hatred, Jesus is showing them, is by teaching them how to get in proximity with people and love them. It is difficult to wash somebody's feet and to hate them at the same time. It's difficult to serve somebody and to despise them. And one of the things that Jesus teaches us is that we have to move in closer. Not push people away further. Move in closer. Be filled with the Spirit. Love people. Move into the places where others are stiff-arming and trying to stay away from those environments. No matter who it is or what they represent, God says, draw close. Represent the kingdom of God in those spaces and places. We see that Jesus actually heals this guy in a really weird way. In fact, when you read this passage, I think this is the first thing we see, right? Wait, hold on. Jesus spits on his hand and touches the guy's tongue? Like, I don't know if I would have gotten healed for that, right? <laughs> like, no, 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 Jesus, I don't want you to touch my tongue with your spit, please, thanks. But it's, it's not the major picture that stands out. The thing that we see here more than anything is that Jesus touches those that the world deems unclean. So what does our culture have to say about the unclean ones? Jesus touches them. What does your community, what does your family have to say about who's unclean and who doesn't fit in? Jesus goes to actually touch them. He doesn't just speak to the problem. He's not cold and distant, but he comes into contact with us in our brokenness. And I can't help but to think that each and every one of us have been the recipients of that kind of mercy and grace from Jesus. Can I encourage you towards something? In this season, what if we were slower to speak loudly and quicker to act in compassion toward people around us? What if we chose to make the commitment that we would not share a judgment on somebody's perspective or opinion unless we were willing to share a meal with them? Are you with me? The way that the world deals with differences and distinctions and outsiders is very different from how Jesus deals with them. And more than anything, we see that Jesus actually wants us to learn to be line crossers, where we step over those places in his grace and his mercy, not to just take our opinion. Guys, honestly, opinions are cheap and they're everywhere. And right now we need a demonstration of God's power and his presence in our community more than we need more preferences and opinions being shouted out from all over the place. They need to know that you care. People need to know that you love. They don't care if you disagree with them, if you love them. In word and deed, right? I don't know why, it just struck me that Jesus never said to people, I love you. He just showed them all the time. I don't think there's a single place where he said, I love you. I'm thinking, sorry, I have... Processing in the moment as you preach is a terrible idea, by the way. 
Jesus just said, if you love me, obey me. He never said, guys, guys, I love you, I love you, I love you. I think he just actually showed it constantly. Just constantly lived it out. And I think in this season, what we have to see is that if we are going to follow Jesus and be more like him, to understand God's heart for people, to reflect his kingdom, then we're going to have to confront our own biases and our hatred toward other people. Eight-month journey. Can you imagine, like, one or two of the guys being like, why are we doing this? <laughs> like, we are not supposed to be around these people. These people are terrible. They're dogs. They're unclean. Why are we doing this? And friends, if we're going to follow the way of Jesus, you're going to have to confront the bias in your own heart and the hatred in your own heart and the racism and sexism and classism in your own heart because Jesus is moving toward the very people that maybe we have stiff-armed in our culture. Are you with me? And that word is something that we all have to wrestle with. And I would just ask you today, just close your eyes for a second. Where is there bias in my own heart? Is there a place where I just, I don't have any tolerance for a people group or an ethnicity or a political persuasion because of how I grew up or an experience that I had. God, where is the bias in our own hearts? And what is it that you are leading us to see? Because your kingdom is expansive. And you want your kingdom to be built among every people group, every ethnicity, every nation. Okay, you can open your eyes. I want to close with just two more little points. Um, the first is, I think we're all that deaf and mute man. You know, the point of the scriptures is that you find your own face in the story. And I think for every single one of us, it's easy to say what a dramatic miracle that was because we don't identify with the person. I don't identify with a lack in ability in this way. I don't identify with having... Uh, no access to Jesus. I don't identify with that. I've had all those things. But we have to find that Jesus has actually ministered to all of us who were at one time deaf to his voice, who were at one time unable to communicate from the power of God that works in our lives. And here in this moment, we begin to see our own face on a person who was outside. Do you remember when you were an outsider? Maybe you feel like you are this morning. You remember what it was like to feel removed from God's power, his touch in your life. Every single one of us is this man. And all of us have this lived experience uh, where Jesus came in and he changed us. And for some of you this morning, maybe he hasn't. Maybe you're asking questions about what it means to belong to him, what it means to have an encounter with King Jesus. And he is saying, I am here. And even though you feel like you're too far away, I will draw you to the side and I want you to know how important you are to me that I want to heal you and save you and redeem you. We're all that deaf and mute man. And finally, for some of us, um, for all of us, Jesus is inviting us on a journey of what it means to unlearn and relearn what his kingdom is all about. 
The thing that is uncomfortable about this is even after the journey, his disciples still struggle with this division from Gentiles. You get into the book of Acts and Peter still struggles with it. Paul and him actually get into a fight about it. You guys remember that? Paul confronts him and he's like, Peter, you're acting one way around the Jews and one way around the Gentiles. What's wrong with you? You're acting like you're, he says, uncircumcised. You're acting like an unbeliever. Crazy. So Jesus took them on an eight-month road trip and they still struggled with the same issue later. Acts 10, he's at Cornelius' house and Peter, again, Jesus confronts him on it. And you know what that shows me? That God will save you long before you have all the pieces figured out about these massive issues. Isn't he gracious? I really want him to have everything worked out so that I can have this idea of my own perfection in the process. And Jesus has, he, he doesn't care at all about keeping you in this idea of your own perfection. In fact, the more you follow Jesus, the more aware you will become of all your own issues. Are you with me? Is that true for anybody else? Like when I really start to follow him, his spirit starts to show me all the places where I'm really selfish and really impatient and really have hate in my heart for somebody. And so can I invite you this morning, just as you stand to your feet, um, that God's inviting all of us into a journey of unlearning our own systems and culture and to relearning who he is and what his kingdom is all about.